0: As much as I'm inclined to talk about my desire to hurl bowling balls, pianos, and other objects through the air with medieval seas engines, I've actually got something else in mind for today's podcast. Instead, I'd like to take up one of my favorite subjects, which is, of course, Dolly. In 1973, after many years in the music industry and uh, much success of a kind, Uh, Dolly Parton decided to leave the Porter Wagner show and leave Porter Wagner's world where he sort of had tremendous influence on her career. She was able to record some albums on her own, but mostly she did duets with him. And uh, in retrospect, of course, uh, she was just propping up an aging country star with her youthful vitality and her uh, amazing voice and songs. Uh, But at the time, it was a considerable risk to jump out of that kind of success that she'd had and take a risk on success on her own. She recorded a great song, I Will Always Love You, um, that charted in the hot country um, charts. uh, And the song became a big song for her. Uh, She recorded it in the early 1980s, where it charted again, um, which is a a semi record a distinction she shares with Chubby Checkers the twist that charted twice in two different decades and then in 1995 she did a really wonderful uh, version of it with uh, with Finn Gill and kind of his band some of the guys from his band in there and it's a, it's a it's a great version but of course in between as we all know she uh, had the song recorded by Whitney Houston, and everyone in the world's probably heard it and has made her a fortune. And the story, I think, seems like a pretty pretty well-known story. Behind it, though, uh, I think we have this remarkable example of her taking this risk and jumping out um, on her own despite having a certain amount of success. Shortly after the song charted in 1973, Elvis's gangster, Colonel Tom Parker... Um, scheduled a recording date uh, where Elvis was going to record the song. And of course Dolly Parton was flattered. She was excited. she she uh, told everybody about it. They invited her to the recording session. She was ready to go. And a couple of days before the session, Tom Parker calls her up and explains to her that of course she has to give away half the publishing that elvis doesn't record anyone else's song without getting at least half of the publishing and it broke her heart and she said she'd love to hear the song uh but that they couldn't have it and she wasn't going to give away her publishing and uh she said she went home and cried but she also said that when Whitney Houston's version came out she made enough money to buy Graceland which is probably true I don't know where Dolly Parton gets her business acumen, she actually credits her dad for it but that seems a little bit implausible if you ask me because uh, you know she grew up in a one room shack with 12 brothers and sisters, actually I think 11, 12 including her I guess is the situation with that I think anyone who knows the podcast knows that I have a tremendous appreciation of Dolly Parton her talent her humanity and the way she functions in the world I think she's just fantastic I in a recent podcast I uh, I mentioned her song It's All Wrong but It's All Right I had to go back and edit because I didn't even remember it was her song I just sort of internalized a lot of that stuff anyway I think she's fantastic Um, and and the reasons I think she's fantastic are that she seems to be a tremendous model of somebody who can function in the world of business um, within an industry that's full of some really shady type people. Um, you know, I refer to Elvis's manager as his gangster. Elvis never performed out of the United States. And and the reason for that seems to be that Tom Parker uh, had committed a murder in the Netherlands where he was born and he had to fabricate a story about being born in West Virginia. It's also rumored that the reason Elvis was compelled to return to touring after his 1968 comeback special um, and the reason he played the um, International Hotel in Las Vegas is because Parker was in so deep with the gangsters for his gambling debts that he had to offer up Elvis as a way to, uh, to launch their new hotel. As far as the murder goes, you know, uh, he's never been convicted of anything, though people within Elvis's Memphis Mafia definitely talk about his temper and his his tendency to become violent. He also was uh, discharged from the army as a young man and diagnosed as psychotic. At the very least, we know he extorted publishing out of Elvis's collaborators, and the extent to which... Elvis Erases as collaborators has been an important part of the conversation about music for a long time. The questions aren't simply uh, about race, um, though that's certainly important, but it's not just that white men took songwriting credit from black men. It's mostly that powerful men used uh, different types of intimidation to get different types of financial advantage for themselves, um, often cutting the artist out of the mix altogether. And, of course, women of all backgrounds have been the most vulnerable in this entire conversation. If you think of somebody who got financially really ripped off in this, like Bo Diddley, for instance, at least Bo Diddley's name is out in the world and we associate that music with his name. Now, again, I don't think that Bo Diddley was treated fair, and I wish he got his money, but often a person like Dolly Parton is sort of locked in a relationship of always being the girl singer to Porter Wagner rather than being the star on her own, even though she clearly had more talent than Porter Wagner. I mean, does anyone know Porter Wagner right now? He's simply a footnote to Dolly, uh, as far as most people are concerned. On the Instagram page of the great alternative country magazine, No Depression, this really shaped a lot of my experience with contemporary music in the last 20 years. They have a an image, and I'm not even really sure what it is, to be honest with you, but it <clears throat> says something about Fanny's House of Music. And it has all these women playing guitars on it. There's uh, Mother Maybelle Carter in the very front with Sister Rosetta Thorpe. Uh, Dolly, of course, is on it. Loretta Lynn. Joan Jett. I don't know who else is in the the image. But I see these, these women who are examples of people who sort of survived this industry. But as the father of daughters, I guess what I'm more concerned about is the women who... Are discouraged before even trying. They don't even have the opportunity to get erased. We'll go to a show and there'll be some guy staring at his feet, mumbling, and they'll act like he's the newfound prince of the world while some of these young women who have really remarkable talent are sort of relentlessly discouraged, even in a sort of musical culture that we participate in that seems probably more supportive than the rest of the world. And if that's what it is at a free show at a bookstore in a small town, you can imagine the situation in an industry town like, you know, Los Angeles or Nashville. Recording and distribution have been such intensely bottlenecked industries, it's kind of amazing that anything ever gets done that's new, and it takes somebody who has a certain amount of character and enough star power to rearrange things for herself, like Dolly Parton, to change. And other artists definitely benefit from that kind of independence. Nobody even buys records anymore, and yet the record industry still maintains this kind of power. And when it does, it's not just, uh, you know, musicians who lose out, it's also us, listeners, fans, enthusiasts. In the past, when small studios have cropped up outside of the system, it's been a benefit for listeners, for artists. It's democratized the music industry. Who can deny that Stax Records or Motown or Chess or Sub Pop or Death Row, whatever your thing is, or Oh Boy Records or some of their artist labels like that, that crop up in order to empower artists to um, take their own artistic direction with their own music. Obviously, some of these other labels fall into the same patterns. I mean, I mentioned Bo Diddley, and Leonard Chess probably ended up with Bo Diddley's money. I mean, you know, uh, Muddy Waters famously said, "'Leonard cheats you fair.'" But I don't know if he cheated everyone equally in that, and they definitely fall into the patterns. It might be more important that somebody like Dolly kind of goes her own way, and that opens the door for other people like her, in the same way that Willie Nelson, recording outside of Nashville, and sort of taking his... um, His artistic vision back to Texas or out to L.A. or taking it in different directions allowed other people to go outside. And it showed distribution companies that records that come from anywhere could be profitable. Speaking of Willie Nelson, I was recently reading... uh, Time is Tight, which is Booker T. Jones' recent memoir, and he talks about producing Stardust. Stardust is a wonderful Willie Nelson album from the 70s, if you don't know it, where he records a bunch of jazz standards, American songbook tunes, um, and it was not exactly what you would have expected from a country star of the time. Booker T. had recently left Memphis to focus on uh, being a producer, and Willie Nelson was kind of hiding out from things in California. He and Booker T were neighbors in Malibu for a minute, and uh, and they started playing these songs together. It was kind of common songs they both knew, and they were just hanging out together, you know. And uh, when it came time to record the record on Columbia Records, the record company executives uh, wouldn't allow a black producer or they hadn't allowed a black producer for a major country release. And Willie just went in and said, well, Booker T's the producer. Take it or leave it. And they took it because it made them a lot of money. And again, I think it's just an individual sort of um, changing the structure of the system at least a little bit um, due to just sticking to his guns or his principles. The fact remains though that these people who write these songs do not always get credit and often you know the studio people will get a co-writing credit or they'll get publishing they often get publishing you know you can't you can't go around saying you know uh that, that you wrote all of these songs when everyone knows that you own the record company but you can get publishing and publishing is is where the money is people don't seem to Recognize that, but that's that's the long tail marketing has to do with publishing. The fight over publishing often uh, is overshadowed by the fight over authorship, and again, I think the fight over publishing is more important. I mean, did Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller write "Hound Dog"? Well, if they did, it certainly at least comes from a musical tradition. The Big Mama Thornton who first released uh, the song. Uh, was immersed in she probably wrote the song they got writer credit for the song there was a long fight over publishing but what's clear about it is that whoever created that song and whatever tradition it came from uh, the publishing did not go to the creator and the publishing is ultimately long tail where the money was I can understand why there's a lot of fight over like who wrote this song or who didn't write that song or does Pat Boone have the right to record Little Richard's song because Little Richard's song comes from a cultural tradition that he was immersed in and Pat Boone is just just appropriating that I understand that conversation and it's not an unimportant conversation but publishing is where the money ends up going It wasn't Pat Boone getting Little Richard's money. As much as I dislike Pat Boone's version of those songs, it was the company controlling the publishing that cut Little Richard out of that equation altogether. And questions about cultural origin and experience just simply never figure into that. I mean, who would doubt that a song called Tutti Fruity was actually written and came from the experience of a drag queen from Macon, Georgia, Little Richard, rather than a middle-class kid from Florida in Pat Boone. There's no question about that. It's also a fact of, of uh, music publishing that you can copyright and get publishing on a lyric and a melody and so anything else is is sort of up in the air i mean a great sort of illustration and example of this that i talk about all the time is that irma thomas did a great version of time is on my side and it became a regional hit in new orleans where she was a popular performer and an r&b singer contemporary of aretha franklin she was is. She's alive. She's still around. It's great. Um, but anyway, in 1963, this song came out. It was written by a guy named Jerry Ragunov, Um, And Kai Winding, a jazz trombonist and band leader, recorded the song. And then Irma Thomas really totally remade the song. Kai Winding's version of the song is kind of cool, actually. Um, it's kind of like a jazz band trying to do... An R&B version of it, uh, but she sort of recasts it as well. What if I, what if a real R&B band does this song, and she gives us the classic arrangement of the song? And so she recorded "Time Is On My Side" in August of 1964 with the classic arrangement that anyone would recognize. Um, And then the Rolling Stones recorded a month later, and it was released on uh, September 24th, 1964, their version of the song that copies the guitar intro note for no, that it, it changes the arrangement very minimally and that it shortens it but it's pretty much the same arrangement and if you listen to those three songs the Kai Winding version the Irma Thomas version and the Rolling Stones version you'll notice that Irma Thomas totally transforms the song and makes it um, appealing to you know young people uh, at the time and it becomes it becomes a a hit um, for the 20-something crowd that she's performing for at the time. And the Rolling Stones simply had a r people connected to their record company in in American cities, and they would simply say, what are the black kids listening to? And they got a copy of her record into the studio, and they basically copied it. And they effectively erased her in that. She didn't get anything for that because you can't copyright an arrangement, even though the arrangement is often the thing that really truly defines the song. So, for instance, when Louis Armstrong totally transforms Body and Soul and turns it into a new song and makes it a jazz standard, he gets nothing for that. Other than whatever he gets on on you know individual record sales at that time, he gets no publishing, he gets no author credit. Uh, but anyway, negotiating for publishing is really a part of the process of what we think of as authorship now. So yeah, you, you see a name on a song that doesn't mean that person is the creator. And then if the person's name is on the song and that person is credited as the creator they may not have profited from having their name on the song beyond the individual record sales they got because some suit might have robbed them of the publishing, which is where the real money is. I hate to bring it up, but publishing, fights over publishing, uh, the reason why Robbie Robertson's still running around with uh, celebrities and movie stars and the rest of the band have mostly died in poverty... On the lived cultural experience side of that thing, Levon Helms said, he got rich off of my life and now I'm poor. And I think that it was true. You know, certainly a song like The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down comes more from Levon Helms' experience growing up in Turkey Scratch, Arkansas than it does Robbie Robertson's experience growing up in Toronto. Um, though he got, of course, author credit and publishing for that song, Levon Helm got nothing. And I truly care about the lived experience of other people in the world. I want to see some people like me doing good so I can uh, aspire to be more like them and to know that I can participate in something that they're doing. I want to see people who are different than me making things that I think are beautiful and I appreciate so that I can understand where they're coming from culturally and I can see how their experience is uh, similar to mine and different of mine and I can appreciate them in a new way. I want... People to find role models so that they can continue to create and move on and do new things in art and I just think that, that industry has been the enemy of this so many times you know there's a kind of neo soul thing going on right now that my kid's really into and I think is great there's some really great performers in it I know I talk about Brittany Howard and the Alabama Shakes all the time but some of those um, people are getting shut down now by industry Ed Sheeran, for instance, um, has a song that sounds a little bit like, I guess, In Style, a Marvin Gaye song, and he was successfully sued by the record company to cease and desist on the song. And it has a lot of songwriters, performers, bands really concerned because always before, as I said, you could only copyright a lyric or a melody, and now they're going after style, which would mean every blues song or every type of country song... Uh, wouldn't be created because they're too similar in style and it's just they're trying to wring out of this industry every last drop and it's killing creativity and it's killing the options of new people participating and letting new people participate in the american experiment is supposed to be has been and for me still is what it's all about